1: Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.
0: Since last November, whilst we've been in and out of lockdowns and taking every precaution to try to save lives, in another part of the world, fear has taken a very different form. Thousands have died as a result of fighting. But getting caught in the crossfire with government soldiers is just one risk faced by some five million civilians there in need of food assistance. In Tigray, in northern Ethiopia, the last few months have seen massacres, torture, horrendous cases of mass rape, and now the threat of famine looms large over the region.
1: I think all the evidence is consistent with the worry that Eritrea, in particular, is using starvation as a weapon of war.
0: You probably haven't heard about the horrors that have been unfolding in Tigray, and there's a reason for that. As families were destroyed and villages decimated, the people of Tigray were silenced too. A media blackout was imposed, the internet was shut down, and journalists were banned. Until recently.
1: People wanted to show us the sites of mass graves where either brothers or sisters uncles or children were buried they wanted to show us photos of their relatives who have been shot
0: the times has been to tigray and seen the devastation firsthand the mass graves and the lingering trauma this episode is not an easy listen but it is an important one
1: the situation in tigray uh, today is unacceptable and and has to change.
0: You're listening to Stories of Our Times from The Times and The Sunday Times. I'm Manveen Rana. Today, Terra Tigray.
1: So Dengalat is a small village in the northernmost part of Ethiopia. It's set across a dry river valley and it's ringed by mountains or cliffs on each side, sheer red cliffs. And you reach it by turning off the main road and you follow a dirt track which goes into the bush.
0: That's Fred Harter.
1: And I'm a reporter for The Times based in Ethiopia.
0: Fred managed to travel to Tigray, the northernmost region of Ethiopia, which had been cut off from the outside world for months. He was trying to get to the village of Dengilat, which was the site of a massacre at the end of last year. We'll rejoin him as he follows the dirt track into the bush.
1: Driving along the roads, we um, stopped. We were with someone who was um, from the village and he pointed out to us two blue stones on either side of the road and he told us that these blue stones were marking the fact that there was mass graves nearby. So we stopped the car, we got out and then he led us down a small dirt track to the right of the road and in a small sort of clearing beneath a rocky hill there was a pile of stones and he told us that this was a mass grave containing the bodies of seven people. On the other side of the road there was a second mass grave, which he said also contained the bodies of three or four people. He wasn't quite exact. And at that point, residents of the village saw our car and had started to kind of walk towards us across the fields. And they pointed us to more blue stones nearby, a little bit along the road, and we saw several more mass graves, some containing five, six, up to ten bodies.
2: That sounds horrifying. Why the blue stones?
1: They told us the Blue Stones were really there to mark them out in two ways. One for themselves, just as an act of memorial, because they're located in a little bit away from the road. So they're there to signify to people on the road that there's mass graves nearby so they won't uh, be forgotten about. But also one of the villagers told us that they were hoping there was a possibility that the blue markings might be identified by satellites from space.
2: They wanted satellites to see what was happening.
1: Yes. At the time of the massacre, the region was cut off, there was no communications, phone lines had been cut, internet was shut off, no mobile internet.
2: Why why Uh, was that?
1: It's a habit the government of Ethiopia has during times of civil strife. The region has been cut off from communications or had been for a very long time since the start of the conflict in November. We visited in April, but the village had been completely cut off. So they'd been several months, kind of living with this trauma of the massacre that had taken place here, and this was kind of a small way of trying to reach the outside world, I guess.
2: I mean, that sounds quite desperate. Is is there a sense for them that the world doesn't seem to realise? I think there's a, there's a, The massacre is taking place there.
1: Yeah. So the massacre occurred in this village of um, Dengalat in late November. It happened during a religious festival. The village had. Swelled to about three or four times its normal size because friends and relatives, neighbours from villages in the surrounding region had gathered.
0: The causes of the conflict in Tigray are complex, and we'll explain more about the background to the fighting later. For now, just imagine what it would be like if your family, friends, and neighbours had all gathered for a holiday. You were celebrating a religious festival, and suddenly your home was under attack.
1: A group of Eritrean soldiers entered the village and basically just started killing people as they found them, taking them out of their homes, rounding them up as they found them on the roadside and led them to spots a little way off the road or to the bank of the riverbed and there they shot them point blank. Many of their hands were bound with belts and you can find these belts still scattered in the valley or topping the mass graves or in parts of the village nearby.
0: Church officials told Fred that they estimate 160 people were killed in the village of Dengalat over the course of one or two days last November. So these horrendous massacres have been going on and nobody's really been able to hear about them. That's right. What were people
2: saying to you?
1: So people were very eager to talk to us, understandably, because they have been cut off for quite some time. So as soon as we arrived at the village and we stopped... A crowd immediately gathered. People came towards us across the fields, wanted to show us the sites of mass graves where either brothers or sisters, uncles or children were buried. They wanted to show us the houses that were looted or from which their friends or family members were taken. They wanted to show us photos of their relatives who had been shot by the Eritrean troops.
0: As the crowd spoke to Fred, horrific tales of tragedy tumbled out.
1: We spoke to one guy, a guy called um, Yibra, who is 27-year-olds. He's an energetic guy. He's young, kind of lean. He has quick movements. He um, is wearing a pink hoodie. And he took us to a part of the riverbed, the bank of the nearby river. And he told us that um, he was hiding in um, some bushes on a nearby hill. He watched as the soldiers came to his family's house rounded up his father two of his brothers four of his cousins and led them to this spot where he was standing and talking to us and there they shot them one by one um at close range whilst his aunts and mother were pleading for them to stop but they were ignored and he told us that he'd previously begged them to run their house is quite away inside the village so when he heard the shooting his first instinct was to flee and he told us that he begged his family to come with him but they refused to go saying that they needed to stay to look after the family's animals. So when the soldiers arrived, he watched them being rounded up and, and shot one by one.
0: As Fred wandered through the village, more horrors unfolded.
1: There was one section of the river where there was a series of about five or six mass and one of them, the residents told us, contained the bodies of about 12 young people, I think the youngest of which was about 17 or 18, the oldest of which was 24. We were told that they were members of a church choir that had sang in the church the day before the massacre happened, the day before they were killed, and lining the top of the grave were their shoes, blood-stained shoes or sandals. It hits you quite hard when you get there. It's obvious that something terrible would happened in the village.
2: There's been a media blackout. It's been very closely controlled by the government. For people who haven't followed the region, or who are just sort of starting to hear about some of the massacres that have taken place now, take us back to the start and could you just tell us a bit about Tigray and why why this has been happening?
1: Tigray is the northernmost region of Ethiopia. It borders Eritrea to the north and Sudan to the west. And at the heart of this conflict really is a long-standing tensions between the federal government of Ethiopia, based in in the capital Addis, and the regional government of Tigray, which was, until November, run by the Tigrayan People's Liberation Front, the TPLF. They dominated Ethiopian politics for about 25 years until 2018. Mm. And they were forced out by a wave of mass protest in 2015, 16, 17, 18. And that was really led by young people from Another ethnic group, who are the Oromo, who are the largest ethnic group in Ethiopia. And that was really driven by a sense of economic and political grievance. The TPLF, when they ruled Ethiopia, they ruled it at the head of a multi-ethnic coalition, really with an iron fist. It was an authoritarian um, model of governance. There was no media freedoms. Ethiopia was the biggest jailer of journalists in Africa And under the TPLF. There was also a sense among the other ethnic groups of Ethiopia, that the TPLF were privileging Tigray and the Tigrayan people, who only comprise about 6 million of Ethiopia's 110 million people. And the Tigrayans were occupying the best jobs in government institutions, but there was also a feeling that economic resources were getting diverted to Tigray and it was being privileged over other parts of the country.
0: So, having had a stronghold on Ethiopian politics for years, the TPLF... The Tigray People's Liberation Front, made sure Tigray benefited more than the rest of the country. That can't have gone down well.
1: So you had this mass protest movement that kind of started in 2015-16. The government initially reacted by following its normal playbook of using military force, of clamping down even harder on descent. But it came quite clear that it wasn't a sustainable situation. So the TPLF were finally forced to relinquish the reins of government after about 25 years. And in their place came to power Ethiopia's current Prime Minister, Abiy Ahmed, who was from the Oromo group. And he kind of really rode this wave of protest and came in as this democratising force, this young reformer. He introduced these sweeping political reforms. He emptied the prisons of political dissidents. He ended censorship, put out a free media. He also invited back exiled political groups to the country, promising reconciliation and this philosophy of togetherness.
0: One of the most significant parts of Abiy's reformist agenda was to make peace with Ethiopia's neighbour, Eritrea. For the past 20 years, while the TPLF had been in power, the two countries had been locked in a military standoff after thousands had been killed in violent attacks at the border. When Abiy came in, he was lauded by the world for wanting to bring this conflict to an end.
1: He made peace with Eritrea. So as part of that, he won the Nobel Peace Prize in 2019. Without hesitation, Ethiopian Prime Minister Abiy Ahmed dedicated the prize to Ethiopians and Eritreans alike, as well as his political counterpart. I accept this award on behalf of my partner and comrade in peace President Isaya Saforke, whose goodwill, trust, whose goodwill, trust and commitment were vital in ending the two decade deadlock between our countries.
2: I mean, I remember that, so he seemed to be the poster boy for for sort of a slightly revolutionary but democratising force in that part of Africa. How does that lead to the violence we're now seeing in Tigray? Well,
1: that's a really interesting question. And I think it lies in the tensions that were created between the federal government and the TPLF during this reforming process. So, Abiy came in, he was seen as this reformer, this democratising presence. But during this reform process, he also moved some critics, say, to centralise his power and sidelines the TPLF officials who had been um, dominating government for the previous two decades and a half.
0: The TPLF, the Tigray People's Liberation Front, were furious. They were ousted from power, and Abiy dissolved their ruling coalition and formed his own without
1: them. The TPLF really refused to engage in that. And so this process of reform alienated the TPLF and kind of started to build these tensions between Tigray and its leaders and the government in Addis.
0: These tensions came to a head last year when Abiy's government postponed the elections that were meant to be held in August 2020 because of the pandemic. The TPLF saw this as undemocratic. They believed the government was attempting to hang on to power past the end of their mandate.
1: And that really was the spark that set everything off.
0: So the TPLF held their own unauthorised election in Tigray
1: in September. And in response to that, the government cut off funding for its regional government. And in the eyes of many um, TPLF officials, that was seen as an act of war.
0: In November, just over a month later, with no government funding coming in, forces loyal to the TPLF attacked a federal army base. In response, Abiy's government sent troops into Tigray.
1: So Abiy, right at the beginning of the conflict, styled this not as a military offensive, but as a law enforcement operation, which he promised it would be swift, and which he said was designed to round up what he called members of a criminal clique, who are the TPF officials who held the unauthorised election in September. But it was clearly something larger than that.
2: The UN is warning that a full-scale humanitarian crisis is unfolding in Ethiopia, where a two-week conflict in Tigray is threatening to descend into civil war. Up to 30,000 people have fled a government offensive by Ethiopian forces against Tigray's
0: powerful... The violence caused by Ethiopian troops entering Tigray quickly escalated as others joined in. What had been billed as a law enforcement operation soon resulted in a massacre.
1: Not only did federal Ethiopian government troops enter from the south, Eritrean troops allies to Ethiopian government forces entered from the north.
0: And the Eritreans weren't the only ones. Ethnic militias from the neighbouring state of Amhara, who have their own schools to settle with the TPLF, also sent in fighters from the west and the south. Tigray, was under attack on several fronts at once. Some of the worst atrocities that have been carried out in the region have been blamed on the Eritrean troops. So why would Eritrea, until recently the sworn enemy of Ethiopia, be helping the Ethiopian government in Tigray?
1: There's been an alliance formed between Isaias, who's the president of Eritrea.
0: That's Isaias
1: Afwerki. And Abiy the Ethiopian prime minister. As part of that alliance, they launched a joint operation. For the Eritreans, this is really an opportunity for them to destroy the TPLF, who they have a long-standing animosity towards.
0: The history of the TPLF and the Eritrean government is long and complicated.
1: They used to be allies in the 80s when they were both insurgent groups trying to overthrow the communist regime, which then ruled Ethiopia. Their leaders had a very close relationship, but they fell out in the 90s. And then in 1998 to 2000, Ethiopia and Eritrea fought a bloody border war with each other over a disputed border region in which thousands of people were killed. At that time, the TPLF were the dominant force in Ethiopian politics. So Esaias, the Eritrean president, has always seen the TPLF as a threat to his power, to his country he sees this as an opportunity to really put them in their place and to wipe them out as a political force.
0: So that party really was the enemy rather than Ethiopia as a whole? Yeah. With so many parties sending in troops, the conflict in Tigray has been devastating for the people who live there.
1: The UN estimates that about 2 million people have been displaced. The latest update says wow. that's 90% of Tigray's population of 6 million or 5.2 million people are in need of food assistance. You have reports of hundreds of women who have been subject to widespread sexual violence, although it's widely agreed that those figures are only the tip of the iceberg and the number could be in the in the thousands. And you also have thousands, possibly tens of thousands of civilians who have been killed. And violence in the west of Tigray has been described by the US Secretary of State, Anthony Blinken, as ethnic cleansing. The challenge in, in Ethiopia is very significant, and it's one that we're very focused on, particularly the situation in Tigray, uh, where we are seeing very credible reports of human rights abuses and atrocities. The situation in Tigray uh, today is unacceptable and, and has to change. Acts of ethnic cleansing, which we've seen in Western Tigray, uh, that has to stop.
0: cleansing, displacement, and an impending famine. Since November, Tigray has also witnessed horrifying cases of rape being used as a weapon of war. We'll have more on the crisis in just a moment.
2: I'm Anthony Lloyd,
1: war correspondent for The Times. It's you who enables me to report from some of the most volatile environments in the world. Get to the heart of the stories that matter every day with The Times and Sunday Times. Subscribe today and enjoy one month free. Visit thetimes.co.uk forward slash stories
2: of our times. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, relax, PlushCare.com slash weight loss.
0: Times reporter Fred Harter arrived in Tigray in northern Ethiopia in late April.
1: Fighting was ongoing. Large parts of the region were still cut off due to the security situation. There was lots of roadblocks and lots of towns were cut off which meant that we couldn't access them.
0: In the villages he could visit, Fred was confronted with horrifying accounts of massacres, ethnic cleansing and mass rape. We're going to hear about some of the victims he met. It's an uncomfortable listen, and if you've experienced any form of sexual violence in the past, you might want to skip this. We've decided to run the horrific details of what happened to some of these women in full... Because the victims in Tigray have been silenced for long enough.
1: When we were in Tigray, we spoke to several women who were survivors of rape, gang rape, and some of whom had been held in what could only be described as conditions of sexual slavery. One of the women that we spoke to, we called her Makda because we didn't want to identify her by name. She had been travelling in a minibus when the bus was stopped by a group of Eritrean soldiers. So they pulled her off the bus. She said that they blindfolded her and they led her to a nearby field. She said that while she was being detained and led away, she tried to scream. And when she tried to scream, she said that the soldiers silenced her by stuffing her mouth with soil they picked up off the ground. And then she was then held for 10 days tied up, she said, with her legs tied to the ground, her arms tied to the ground. And she said that she was raped repeatedly for about eight hours a day by a group of 20 Eritrean soldiers, sometimes individual soldiers, but often groups of soldiers, to the point where they broke her pelvis. And she said that she was injected repeatedly with tranquilizers. She said that her arm was raw from repeated injections in the same site in her upper arms and her forearms. And she also said that the soldiers, towards the end of her ordeal, they inserted two three-and-a-half-inch nails, a screwed-up plastic bag, and a rock into her vagina, and then they basically dumped her in a ditch and left her for dead.
0: Macta was eventually discovered there by some civilians who brought her to a hospital.
1: Mm? Mm.
0: Horrified by her injuries, a member of staff at the hospital filmed part of the operation to remove the nails and rock from her vagina and posted the video on social media to alert the world to the horrors they were seeing.
1: After that video came out, a group of soldiers reportedly went to the hospital where they believed that she was being or had been treated looking for her. But she wasn't thankfully there and she's now in hiding. But she was keen to tell us about her ordeal because she wanted to get the story out. But she still didn't feel able to tell her family what happened to her. She was in a safe house and her brother was helping to care for her. But he believes that she can't walk because she was in a car accident. She said that she would never tell her family what happened to her. And sadly, the same thing was said to us by most of the rape survivors that we spoke to.
2: How was she when you saw her?
1: You could see that she was naturally a warm person. I mean, she was still very quick to laugh. I think that's the sort of character that she was when we first met her. But as she began to retell her ordeal, tell us the story, there were several times where she broke down and we had to pause because it was, it was too much. She's said that she wants to tell her story because she wants to, the world the international community to know about what's happening to women in tigray so it was it was difficult but obviously um the main thing was yeah trying to give her the space to talk about um, what happened to her
2: tell me about some of the other victims you met
1: we also spoke to two elderly women in their late 70s i think about 76 and 78 who were raped by soldiers one of the women was in the middle of being attacked and, and raped with a grenade being held to her head. And the other woman went into the barn where the attack was happening to try and stop it and then was accosted by another soldier who was present and forced to the ground. And they were raped side by side. And the, they were two grandmothers from a small village and they'd been best friends for about three or four decades. So there was a range of experience from opportunist attacks to women who are also held for several days.
2: It just sounds so shocking and so appalling. Is this, is this one of those war zones where rape is being used as a weapon of war?
1: It's extremely widespread. And certainly on the Eritrean side, it seems to be part of their strategy for how they're conducting the war in Tigray in terms of controlling or humiliating the population. One clinic that uh, we um, went to has now treated more than 500 women for rape, but they were saying that this is the tip of the iceberg because of lots of women weren't able to come to the clinic to access the services because fighting had closed the roads or there was no transport, but also because the huge um, social stigma and many people were too scared to come forward.
2: I mean, it's, it just sounds horrendous. You've also visited a hospital while you were there. Tell me a bit about that.
1: So we visited um, Hausen Primary Hospital, which is a hospital which in peacetime was the main hospital for a region of about 100,000 people. When we arrived, the hospital was completely abandoned. Its wards had been trashed.
0: Fred filmed the scenes as he walked around the hospital.
1: So the pharmacy was the first part of the hospital that we saw, and the scene was just one of complete um, devastation. The whole hospital felt like you were in some sort of zombie apocalypse film with trash medical equipment everywhere, and empty wards, broken um, computers. The shelves were completely almost bare, but the floors of the pharmacy were just littered with packets of pills, medicines, kind of tattered old documents. You couldn't see the floor. It was just thickly blanketed with this kind of rubbish and you're kind of walking and treading on these kind of discarded packets of pills. It was a scene of devastation basically. We spoke to two um, doctors who used to work there and are now displaced to another part of of the region and they described watching Eritrean military medics come to the hospital in late November and make an inventory of its equipment and then watched as uh, trucks came to to carry much of it away. This is a scene which is repeated across Tigray. MSF, the Medical Charity Doctors Without Borders, says that in March that 70% of the hospitals and health clinics that they visited had been um, looted or destroyed. We have documented in the visits of over 106 health facilities in Tigray And over 70% of them have been looted, vandalized, and and I would argue in the most malicious way, not just to to take property out, but really making them unusable for anybody afterwards and the willful destruction of medicine and supplies with huge impacts for the population. Even the ones that are running, their doctors told us that they are running low of basic stuff like screws, surgical instruments, um, gels that you would use for ultrasounds.
2: So for the people who live there, not only are they being you know, raped and murdered, there's a horrendous level of violence, but there's not even the medical facilities to rely on anymore?
1: No. We spoke to doctors who described performing a caesarean section, using the lights from their mobile phones, without surgical instruments, and while shells from an artillery barrage were falling um, nearby. We spoke to doctors who told us about diabetic patients who died because there's no insulin, about a patient who had a chronic heart complaint, which had been managed for about eight years successfully with medication, who suffered a heart attack and who died within about half an hour whilst the doctors watched because they didn't have any um, medicines or to treat him or any equipment um, available to treat him. The health system as a, as a whole has been hit very hard by the conflicts and there are accusations that it's a deliberate campaign by Eritrean soldiers to vandalise or destroy the region's health infrastructure.
0: The conflict has also left the region on the brink of a famine, as food supplies have been destroyed and farming disrupted. While he was there, Fred and his local colleagues attempted to visit a rural area so that they could see firsthand what was happening. But access wasn't easy.
1: It's very difficult because the food crisis is happening in places that are hard to access precisely because they're very unstable because there's a heavy presence of Eritrean troops which block you from going there. So we tried to go to a place called Samri, which is just to the southwest of Mekelle, And it's a big food producing region with orchards, irrigation systems, which supplies lots of the food to Mekelle. Um, when we went there, we passed through five checkpoints of Eritrean soldiers who were quite suspicious, quite hostile. At the fifth checkpoint, we were stopped, made to park the car and um, turn it around, facing the way we came. We heard a series of five gunshots ring out from about 40 metres away, around the corner. And at that point, we decided that we were going to head back to Michele because of the security situation. But along the way, we passed through um, villages that had been looted. Lots of them had the the doors kicked in. Some of the farmers that we spoke to told us that they were beaten by the soldiers if they tried to plough their fields. They also said that they weren't receiving any food days, that they didn't have enough to eat, that if they tried to stockpile foods. the soldiers would come and loot it. They weren't able to buy any seeds because the market had collapsed. And they also told us about two women from nearby hamlets who they said had starved to death.
0: The United Nations is warning of widespread famine in Northern Ethiopia after months of fighting in the Tigray region between local rebels and government troops. The UN says without significant help, things could deteriorate to levels of malnutrition not seen since 1984.
2: it has been 30 years since the last famine what we know what happened 30 years ago was so horrifying you know everybody around the world remembers the images coming out is there a real fear that that's where we'd return
1: there's a group called the famine early warning system fuse they released a update last month which says that now 3.3 million people out of a population of six million in tigray are facing um, acute hunger. It's in their phase four, their emergency phase four. Phase five is famine. So you have this large part of the population which are now organisations like that are warning are uh, on the brink of facing this very acute, very serious hunger crisis.
2: So the fighting is ongoing. There is the threat of famine looming. There's a horrendous level of, of killings and rape and violence is there any hope for for the region? Um, What's the best case scenario at this stage?
1: That I honestly don't know. It seems that there's not going to be a negotiated political settlement anytime soon. What we've seen in the last few weeks is a increase of diplomatic pressure on the Ethiopian government. The EU. Do
2: you think that'll make a difference?
1: It's hard to say. I, the Biden administration announced restrictions on visas. To the US for officials and TPLF members that it deems to be undermining a resolution to the conflict. It also announced what it called wide ranging restrictions on security and economic assistance to Ethiopia, which is one of the biggest, if not the biggest, recipients of US aid in Africa, south of the Sahara. So that is a big stick to use. Whether or not it will have any effects, time will tell. I don't see it having any immediate effects in the short term.
0: Without more intervention from the outside world, it's hard to see an end to the conflict, particularly since the Ethiopian government has a lot of support amongst their voters for their actions in Tigray, as Fred found when he spoke to people in the streets in Addis Ababa, the Ethiopian capital.
1: They denounce reports of atrocities as fake news. I spoke to someone on Sunday who says that Tigrayan rebel fighters are actually manufacturing Eritrean uniforms and wearing them, and uh, committing the atrocities themselves and spinning it as Eritrean troops kidding um, civilians. That was at a large um, rally held at the main stadium in Addis Ababa to denounce what they called foreign intervention in Ethiopia's domestic affairs following the announcement of the um, visa restrictions by the US. So with those elections coming up, I don't see any resolution anytime soon. Maybe in a few months down the line, the international pressure will start to bite. So time will tell if international pressure will have some effect in bring us closer to a resolution of the conflicts. The main thing in the eyes of the diplomatic community that is preventing a resolution to the conflict is the continued presence of Eritrean troops in Tigray. The government confirmed their presence, I think it was in March, and then it announced that they were withdrawing, and they they've been repeating the assertion that the Eritrean troops would be withdrawing from the region. But based on our reporting and also based on accounts from other people who have visited Tegai, it doesn't seem that that withdrawal was underway. So that at the moment is the biggest barrier to the conflicts, and the Eritrean soldiers in the region seem pretty firmly entrenched.
0: With the conflict still raging, there's no end in sight to the violence, and brutality raining down on the people of Tigray. For Fred, his visit to the region left him with a series of horrifying accounts and haunting images. This was supposed to be a quieter moment, which Fred filmed during a visit to a rural church.
1: It's a very old church, a rock-hewn church, built into a cliff face. We went to the church because we were told that there was a mass grave there, which contains the bodies of about seven people, but including a husband and wife in their 50s, and also a priest who was in his early 80s. So we went to the, to the churchyard to see this grave. And as we arrived through the main gate, where the grave um, was just to the right as we entered, there was singing coming from the church as we walked up. There's a large congregation of people dressed in traditional white shawls, which you see a lot in Ethiopia. A heavy smell of incense burning, which is also a very um, common thing here. And this rhythmic chanting or singing. No, I mean uh, artillery. Artillery? Uh, yeah, I heard. Oh. Yeah. And as we were standing outside the church um, listening to the singing, we could just hear a very faint rumble of uh, a thud of artillery. Um, in the background whilst the singing was going on.
0: You've been listening to Stories of Our Times, a podcast brought to you thanks to the subscribers of The Times and The Sunday Times. With me, Manveen Rana, and my guest, reporter for The Times, Fred Harter. You can read more of Fred's reporting from Tigray and Ethiopia online at thetimes.co.uk. The producer today was Brenna Daldorf. The executive producer is Poppy Damon, and sound design was by Nigel Appleton. If you'd like to get in touch with any stories you'd like us to look into or any thoughts on what you've just heard, then please do drop us an email to storiesofourtimes at thetimes.co.uk. If you're affected by any of the issues we've discussed and you'd like to talk to someone about them, we'll leave a link to a helpline in the description to this episode. Thanks again for listening. See you tomorrow.